Hey, well, welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And on the other side of the screen uh, is Sterling Hawkins. (coughs) Pardon me, Sterling Hawkins. Had something in my throat. And Sterling is joining us from Denver. Good day to you, Sterling. How are you? Good to see you, Greg. Thanks for having me on. Very good. Well, he was introduced to me by Alex Weber. Uh, and Alex was recently on the show, and we're going to be talking to Sterling this morning about his new book called Hunting Discomfort, and the tagline to that book is How to Get Breakthrough Results in Life and Business No Matter What, and his tash- hashtag is No Matter What. Um, you can so probably you can, tell, right? <laughs> yeah, you can tell from you can tell from the back of his screen. Also, for those of you wanting to uh, go to his website, just go to sterlinghawkings.com, and there you'll learn more about him. Um, you can book him for events. He's got a store, a blog, <clears throat> the industries he works in, and where he posts at no matter what. Um, Sterling, I'm going to let the listeners know just a tad bit about you. Um, Sterling sure. Hawkins is out to break the status quo. He believes that he can um, help unlock incredible potential within ourselves. And he is on a mission to support people, businesses, and communities to realize that potential regardless of the circumstances. Uh, from a million, multi-million dollar startup to a collapse and coming back to launch, invest, and grow over 50 companies, Sterling takes that experience to work with C-level teams with some of the largest organizations on the planet and speaks on stages around the world. Um, He's based in Colorado um, and is a proud uncle of three and a passionate adventurer. And we'll speak about some of that, all the things he does, skydiving, climbing mountains, shark uh, diving, and even trekking to the Sahara Desert. Is that correct? Did I get that right? That is correct. Yeah, well, thanks for all that. Th- I, I not- feel like it always sounds better than it feels doing it sometimes. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, one of the things you know is I'm working on a book, Life on the Precipice, with a bunch of mountain climbers. One mountain climber in particular, but I've interviewed many. And, you know, it's interesting uh, when you have this curiosity, which is really required of any entrepreneur that you work with is curiosity kind of leads to their purpose. There's a lot of things in between, Mm. but it leads to purpose. And I think people that are constantly curious, they want to know, they like to ask questions, they're inquisitive. Um, Those are the people that are good to have on your team. Um, Those are the people that you want to have. Now, you were involved in a family business that went through tremendous growth and then complete and utter collapse as you kind of just basically said. Um, can you right. tell us a little about the business, uh, your learning lessons in the family business, and why you now believe that experiencing discomfort, because there is going to be some <clears throat> naysayers out there that are going to sure. say, well, I don't know if I want to experience discomfort, um, <laughs> is the way through your problems. <laughs> um, I think discomfort seeks us out. Uh, and we have to learn how to work with that, but, um, yeah, and, and yeah, I, case, I would agree if we're not hunting discomfort, it's hunting us. Yes. Yes, it is. I, I, I'm a perfect example of that this morning. I was a little bit frenzied, you know, and maybe it shows a bit, <laughs> but there was fraudulent activity on my debit card. Oh, so man. if you know, your whole world is uh, run by this business debit card, right? And you have to shut it down, right? And you say discomfort. Yes, it's inconvenient. And there's a lot of discomfort associated with it. So um, sure. that's a minor one in comparison to the ones that you that you went through. But yeah. um, speak with us why you think people, you know, we're at a severe advantage if we avoid discomfort. Yeah, Um well, a couple of things. Probably the biggest piece of feedback I get from people that just see me in passing or maybe just see the title of the book is, Sterling, you got to look at my business, my bank account, my relationships, my family. Like, I don't need to hunt discomfort. I'm surrounded by it. <laughs> yeah. And my answer is always the same. Oh, you mean you're living with discomfort, not hunting it. 
When you hunt it, you are forever and permanently free from it. And that's really the point. There's this paradox about discomfort. The more you hunt it, the more you seek it out, the more you go through it, the less you actually feel it in the long term. And that's the power of this stuff. And I think that's the only place true freedom really exists. And, you know, to go back to your first question, Greg, I did not pick discomfort. If anything, I, I wanted nothing to do with it. I wanted comfort, certainty. Uh, I wanted a, a successful life in the terms of having enough money and a nice family and you know, all the things that many people want. And I did start a company with my dad. This is early 2000s now. Mm-hmm. And we sold it to a group in Silicon Valley where it became part of a conglomerate. It was no longer a family company, although my dad and I were still involved. And it was essentially the Apple Pay before Apple Pay. Mm-hmm. It was a, a little fingerprint sensor that sat next to the credit card terminal. So you didn't need your phone or anything else. And you just put your finger down. And just like Apple Pay, your credit cards would come up, loyalty cards, all the relevant things right inside that credit card terminal. And people would look at this thing, potential customers, clients, even investors, and say, this is the future. And so we had money thrown at us from the private equity world. And we went on to raise, uh, again, this is the much larger group that I was simply a part of, 550 million US dollars, multi-billion dollar valuation. And at this point, Greg, I'm thinking, yeah, I, I don't need discomfort at all. I've got this whole thing figured out. I understand what my life's going to be about. I'm going to buy a private jet, maybe an island. Like clearly I'm the next Bezos or at least on my way. <laughs> and then, you know, like we said earlier, if you're not hunting discomfort, it is hunting you. And I had pushed it off, not dealt with it for so long and in so many uh, pretty large ways that when the discomfort hunted me, it came in force. When the it was around the housing market collapse, we couldn't raise any more money. We didn't have enough organic growth to sustain the 700 people we had, offices all over the world, and the entire thing went bankrupt. $550 million of cash gone. Mm. And I really didn't know what to make of it, especially at the time. Like I, I thought that I had defined myself. I didn't just think that. I knew I had defined myself by the success of this company, who my friends were, the things that I had. And so when it came crashing down, I totally collapsed. I completely lost my identity. Um, and it was kind of like I was playing out the sad country song of a story where I go from this big, beautiful penthouse in downtown San Francisco to my parents' house. Right. Uh, I no longer have a job, of course. Eventually, I run out of cash. My girlfriend breaks up with me. It was like one thing after number after another. I'm hitting every single beat of this thing. And it, it wasn't until kind of I, I hit rock bottom, at least what rock bottom was for me, where I'm at my parents' house. It wasn't the house I grew up in even. It was a new house they'd moved into. I've got my suitcases and boxes in the room and it's the first night. And frankly, I don't know if I can or even if I wanted to go on. It it was some of the deepest, darkest moments of my entire life. And it was in those moments that I learned that not only is discomfort necessary, But going through the discomfort of letting go of who I thought I was, what I thought I was capable of, what I thought my potential was limited to, going through the discomfort of letting go of some of those things Mm -hmm. that gave rise for me to be able to become something better, something new. And it was really the start of hunting discomfort of my own, something that very obviously has become very near and dear to my heart. Well, it's an interesting story because I think many of the listeners out there maybe can't relate to the scale. Um, But I went through several because I was a serial entrepreneur and still am. Yeah. And uh, I had one very similar to yours. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. sitting here listening to you and I'm sure there's hundreds or if not thousands of listeners out there going, yeah, I, I know what Sterling is talking about. And there was a, there's a Buddhist saying, you know, um, the pain and suffering, which we basically create, is our way of only understanding how we can get out of the pain and suffering. 
right? Exactly. So when you're in that, and I probably didn't quote it correctly, but in essence, you know, you you have to learn from this pain and suffering. And you're saying hunting it is the big difference. And, the, and that's where I want to go with this. You tell a great yeah. story in the opening to your book about speaking in Singapore yeah. uh, to a very large conference. And this was after the collapse of the family business. You were getting yeah. yourself going again. And you mentioned that you got the gig by answering a spam email. Um, <laughs> and for some reason, you remembered one of your mother's sayings. There were two in the book, but one is, yeah. don't take a wooden nickel, which to me means, uh, it, which means done by falsely being persuaded or duped into doing something, right? Mm -hmm. So you say that something that came to mind was, the way out is through or the That's way right. out is the way through. So yep. what is it about going through the discomfort and getting to the other side of the unknowing uh, that brings us the results that we've been looking for? Yeah. Um, well, so in those moments at, at my parents' house, you know, I, I think I went through a lot of thoughts and a lot of emotions that many of us have experienced. Things like, I'm not good enough. I'm I'm not enough, period. I've messed this up. This being this business, my life in general, the things I was working on. And, and also all the other people's lives. You know, you said exactly. you had 500 employees. Your father was involved with it as well. Right. And I, and I had the same feelings when all these people can't be paid. Right. Uh, or you're closing the doors. You, you feel like an utter failure because it wasn't this... This was not, you know, your, I say your attachment to the goal yeah. is the thing that creates the pain and suffering because yeah. you felt you had this aim and this goal you were going to reach and you were so attached to the outcome mm -hmm. and the outcome didn't happen the way you wanted it. And they <laughs> not say, not even in the ballpark, <laughs> yeah, they say, don't get attached to the outcome and understand how impermanence in your life. Yeah. Everything's impermanent. Right. Um, and so, you know, we walk around all day long thinking, oh, well, we got all this great stuff. It's, it's impermanent and we're attached to this outcome. And then we're extremely dis disappointed and depressed. Right. And it doesn't work the way we thought it was going to work. Exactly. Okay. And, it, you know, just a, a little distinction there is it didn't just feel like I was a failure, like I was a failure. Like it felt like the truth, right? Not just a perspective. And it, you know, to your point was a view of myself and where I was that I didn't want to let go of. And that's what I think drew out this, um, this, this failure into something that could have been maybe months into something that became years. And you're, you're right. It was probably because I'm living at my parents' house. The phrase my mom said came to mind, the way out is through. And if I wanted to get out of this, I was like, okay, well, let's put this thing to the test. Like, let's test drive this thing and see if the way out really is through. And having all this self-doubt, fear of exposure, which I was medicated for at the time, I'm, I'm no longer, um, I figured, okay, I'm going to go speak in public somewhere. It was my biggest fear. I was like uh, what Seinfeld says, one of the people that would rather be giving the eulogy than in the coffin. like. Of all the things in the world, the last thing I wanted to do is stand on a stage because I felt like a failure. There was a lot of shame. There was embarrassment, all the things that had gone with it. And so I get this spam email for a conference in Singapore. I'm sure they sent out thousands, tens of thousands of them. And I'll never forget. I hit the reply button. I said, why don't you have me speak? Best Sterling. And I don't know what I expected. I kind of forgot about it. But long story short, I end up getting on the phone with the conference director and negotiate to be their keynote speaker. Maybe it was because I literally had nothing else to lose. I was in six figures of personal debt at the time. And I remember when they sent the agreement across, Sterling, you're going to speak on this date in Singapore for this many minutes. I had like all the self-doubt came crashing down on me who are you to speak at this conference? Like, why are you going to go let more people down? You're not credible. You don't have speaking experience, not to mention you're terrified to do it. 
And before I let the self-doubt stop me, which I, I think is a, a good practice for everybody, I signed the agreement. I committed in a way where there was no going back and I sent it back to them. And when you do that, when you commit in a way where there's no going back, it calls you through whatever discomfort is in front of you. And it probably will call you into some of the actions necessary to take to move through it and and be at least somewhat successful in it. For me, it was practicing the speech I was going to give and writing it and rewriting it and doing the slides. And um, Greg, I was like obsessed with this thing. I must have practiced it thousands of times. And when I get there, I, I'm still dreading it. But it is a good thing that I practice because I think I blacked out on the stage. Like I do not remember after the the room started to spin and I got really hot. Like I don't know what went down on that stage. And I think I failed. And I'm kind of covering my eyes like this and just trying to make it towards the exit. And I want to get on a plane and, and go home uh, because I've I've just now let down more people and embarrassed myself and all these terrible things. And the conference director makes a beeline for me and he goes, Sterling. I got to tell you, that was the best speech I've seen in all my years of doing this. I couldn't believe it. And to this day, I don't think he was in the same talk that I was in. I think he just wanted to say something nice to me. <laughs> but he did go on to put me in touch with all of his conference director friends. And I had the beginnings of a speaking career on my hands. I was like, my mom was right. The way out is through. You just need the courage and the commitment to go through. And it's interesting what, how that yeah. you you framed that. Even to this day, he told you you were great, and and there's still that self doubt. What I find, and you mm-hmm. speak about it, is the subconscious is so um, can be so programmed by you know by what right. we say, and you even right. talk about this in the book, right? And. Um, I know because I go to a hypnotist every time I go under surgery, if I have to have a wow. skin cancer and I had a cataract removed the other day and I go to, I go to hypnotherapy first to reprogram the subconscious so that everything is perfect. Smart. And it is, I'm sitting here today, That's smart. like four days later, right? I see you perfectly. Everything's fine. Right. Wow. Uh, my, my point to that is, is that it's it's so imperative for the listeners, and I want them to hear this because you talk about it in the book. Mm. It's like, how are you going to reprogram that subconscious? What are you doing, right? Mm-hmm. And that self-doubt that we carry around, and who knows? We've carried around stuff from when we were kids, when our parents said no. Right. right? They said, no, you can't yep. do that. You know, you, you want to do this? No, it's too dangerous. No, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what, you know, that's what comes through. Um, so I think you state in the book that when we hunt discomfort, mm-hmm. it strengthens our discomfort muscle. Eh, 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 right here? That's right. And which increases our capacity to handle greater and a greater amounts of discomfort. Yeah. Why should someone have to seek discomfort to get the results they're looking for? And what is in it for them? Uh, that, yeah. That's what I want you to answer. It's like, okay, if I'm going to go do this and I'm going to strengthen this muscle, I get it. I'm strengthening a muscle. Now I can do, you know, a hundred pushups. Yeah. But you're telling me, let's go hunt discomfort. <laughs> <laughs> right. right? And so I get that when discomfort comes, you should be able to handle it with a lot more ease. Right. Well, and, and you'll maybe be free from the emotional constraints of it, right? Like discomfort is promised to all of us in this life. Oh, yeah. You know, the end state of which is none of us are getting out of this thing alive. Right. Discomfort will be there. And I think that, between us and the results that we want, and I mean results very generally, could be money, time better spent, deeper relationships, maybe just more joy and happiness. It's not not having enough money or the being the right age or having the right mentor or the right connections. Um, I don't even think it's just grit and determination, although all of those things might be critical. I would say the one thing that's between you and any of those results that you want is the discomfort that you're avoiding. Mm -hmm. And when you go through it, 
you get better. You, you kind of prove yourself wrong. You prove that self-doubt wrong and you get better at it so you can continue to do it to continue to grow over time. And not only, Greg, was this my personal experience, but I'm sure you read in the book, I found this research at the University of Michigan right. and they were studying my favorite topic of discomfort. And they would look at physical discomfort, emotional discomfort. Um, and they were scanning people's bodies and brains as they were going through this discomfort. And what they found blew me away. No matter what kind of discomfort somebody was experiencing, their bodies and brains processed it almost identically. So much so, you can take a acetaminophen for emotional pain. Right. Now, I'm not a doctor. That's not a biohack. That's not even something I suggest you do. In fact, I suggest you don't do that. Right. But what I do suggest is taking that next step to say, okay, if where we meet discomfort is the same everywhere, we can grow our capacity to deal with it anywhere. It's a muscle you can build, right? You go to the gym to build your biceps. But if you want to build not just your resiliency, but your ability to create breakout growth, break the status quo of yourself personally, your business, your family situation. If you want to be able to kind of make these quantum leaps in performance and results, you hunt discomfort. There's just no other way. So to answer your question very directly, like the reason you do it is because that's where all the results are. Okay. So I remember... It's been a while ago now. Jonathan mm. Fields was on here, an author of a book around uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And I, and I want to talk about what actually creates discomfort. Yeah. Because from a psychological standpoint, okay, yeah, there's discomfort if something happens to our body. I get that. Yeah. Uh, there's those kind of discomforts. There's discomforts in training. If you're doing excessive training to climb a mountain or to climb Everest or to do that. I get that. But then there's this mental discomfort, which is the biggest one, which frequently they say 99% of what you worry about never just happens anyway. Right. Right. But yet we still worry about it because the mind is programmed. We have this kind of limbic system as these ancient beings that we still are, and it's taken us millions of years to evolve to this point, right. to not do that. It's it's not like us. It's a conundrum to yeah. say, okay, because we are going to default to certainty, and we're and the body is going to default to homeostasis. It always yep. wants to go back to homeostasis after you've pushed it, right? Yeah, and yep. thank God it does because it's there to protect us. Yeah, or, or maybe it becomes a new homeostasis. Maybe a, maybe a new one. Maybe a yeah. new one. It's true. But what this this where is this discomfort in your estimation psychologically coming from? Yeah. I I think you said it. Evolutionarily, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, arguably it's the reason that we are all here. Because the discomfort of running towards the lion on the African savanna did not end well for our ancestors. Right. Right. Avoiding discomfort was a means of survival. Now, I think here's where we went wrong. In let's call it the caveman days, they were forced to deal with whatever the source of the discomfort was, or they just would perish. There was no other way. It was a driver um, having them deal with the problems that they had. Ah, I've got the discomfort of hunger. I better go find something to eat. Mm-hmm. I've got the discomfort of, uh, I don't know, maybe being lonely. Like I better find a tribe to connect myself with or I'm not going to make it. So right. it was driving behavior. Now, in modern times, we have the, let's call it a luxury of being able to avoid discomfort, right? In theory, I can work here on Zoom. I can order food via Uber Eats and I can be entertained on Netflix. Like I don't have to go anywhere and my comfort level, I can keep pretty well maintained and anything that's a little bit uncomfortable, I don't necessarily need to deal with the source of, right? It's not a life and death matter that, you know, I have that uncomfortable conversation with my mom that I've wanted to have for years, for example. But so in the level of discomfort, Sterling, I had a social biologist on here, Rebecca Costa, wrote a book called The Watchman's Rattle and On the Verge. Mm 
Yeah. She, and an interesting thing about what she said to me, and, and it goes right along with this, is that um, as, a, as a species, mm-hmm. take it global warming, all of this stuff that's happening that we are avoiding. Yeah. So what happens is the discomfort level has to get so high before yeah. we take action. And I keep thinking about it. How in the hell stupid is that? Right? <laughs> right. You've got to be squeezed <laughs> to a point of whatever. Yeah. And she says that's just the way, as a social biologist, we're made up. Mm-hmm. You know, look how long it takes to take action on anything. Look at the current gun control laws. And you look at just it's sitting in Congress and spinning around and nothing happening again. Right. And you're like saying, how much more discomfort and pain and suffering does there have to be? Before, as human beings, we take action. I get there's got to be many people that agree on it, and there's all the politics and bullshit. But just think in your own life of shit that hits you, that you brush under the rug, Mm -hmm. and it hits you again, and you brush it under the rug until it gets so freaking painful that the attorney says to you, and this isn't my personal case, my, my, uh, uh, my listeners know this. Yeah. I think it'd be good if you filed bankruptcy. Mm. And I was so afraid to file bankruptcy that I just, I I, I kept avoiding it. You know, sure. you just keep doing things to do it. When right. if you would take the action when it first starts to show, <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you're following what I'm saying? It, we, it, avo- we avoid discomfort. Yeah. And we keep seeking pleasure. Right. Which, if you look at any of Dr. Gabor Mate's work, he would say that avoiding that discomfort that's deep within us is the source of all addictions. Yeah. And addictions in the medical sense, for sure. But I think uh, uh, maybe the same mechanism, but a, a, a lesser impact for all of us. Right. Like I'm avoiding the discomfort of this bankruptcy. So I'm going to distract myself with doing these other things. Right. Or for me, I'm going to avoid the discomfort of having to like come clean and talk about like, I don't have the money to go out to dinner anymore with, you know, the fancy friends that I had. I I would rather, you know, watch Netflix and order a pizza. Yeah. 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 Right. And when you get to the core of that discomfort, sure. You can wait until the world just comes crashing down on you and you're forced to move or to your point, Greg, we can go after some of those things when they present them early. And the more often we do that, the better we get at it. Uh, agreed. And that's the point I was trying to get to. The more often yeah. you frequently address the issue and the sooner. Um, in other words, all those discomfortable things don't have to be as discomfortable. <laughs> okay. Right. And, and um, you'll be free from them. Yes. Right. Like, right. Like you don't have to deal with, uh, well, in my case, living at my parents' house in my 30s, which is not a good look. Right. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I could have dealt with it. Maybe in a um, more, uh, like in the short term, a more painful way, but in the long term, less discomfort over time. Yeah. Now, in the book, you state that discomfort is the only thing between us and the results we want to achieve, and that there's five key discomforts that we will encounter that will keep us stuck. That's right. And what can you do about changing our reality and our lenses of belief that drive the actions associated with that. Yeah. Um, well, let me just pick up on the lenses of belief for a second, because that is how beliefs work. Just like lenses, lenses in, well, your glasses and my contacts. <laughs> you know, with um, the first thing is that the glasses and the beliefs change what you see, right? If I were to put your glasses on, Greg, I would probably see worse. If you were to put my contacts in, you would see worse as well. You want an example, a real quick one, Sterling? Yeah. So before this cataract surgery, obviously things were blurry, but the after the cataract surgery, yeah. now in this eye, this one eye, yeah. every, the colors are just pop. Everything wow. is like, it's like, yeah. what happened to the colors over the course of 68 years? Right. They just like literally started to kind of change, but you didn't notice it because it changed gradually. So you put in this new lens and then all of a sudden you're looking at your computer and you're looking outside and you're looking at the flowers and the bees and the stuff. And you're going, what what happened? 
You know, (laughs) it's a a pretty good example when you change the lens. Uh, Right. And and what your perception can be. When you change the lens of belief about one of three things, either yourself, others as an individual or as a group or the world, you have a very similar experience. Like, wow, I cannot believe the vividness, the potential, the possibility that I can now see. Um, the other kind of analogous component with lenses that I think is important is that you and I, many people go to the eye doctor to regularly have your lenses adjusted, right? I, I was just there last week, actually, and they said, great, we're going to change your prescription a little, little bit. Fantastic. But how often are are we taking off our lenses of belief, stepping back from the things that we believe to evaluate is that the best belief for us or is that most the most effective belief to get to what we want? And what when a we great ste- statement. Well, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah no worries. The, the ophthalmologist said, hmm. your eyeglasses are obsolete now. Wow. Just like your beliefs are obsolete when you change the lens. Right. He didn't say anything else. He says, go get some cheaters to look at the screen or whatever. He said, but you don't need them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a belief you had, right? You're running around with a belief. It doesn't matter. You had to have a corrective lens, but I know what you're saying because we're carrying beliefs from so many years that have piled on us. Right. And we've been running with those beliefs and creating our reality as a result of those beliefs. Yeah. Um, that we used to have a say, saying at, at the school I went to for a spiritual psychology degree, which was, you don't have to believe everything you think. Now, I love that statement like that. because it was like, hey, I think a thought, but that thought doesn't need to become a belief. Right. 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 But for some reason, you grab onto one of those. And there's another one, and there's another one, and there's another one, and there's another one. Before right. you know it, you've built your house around yeah. your beliefs. Right. Right. Uh, oftentimes unconsciously so, right? If, if you were to put on 10 different pairs of glasses, you would know it. Right. But these beliefs, especially the ones that will really make a difference for somebody, are so deep and oftentimes things that we've held on to for so long, you don't even know you have them anymore. Right. And, you know, I, I think it is worth calling out that the lenses you've had got you here, right? They they did work to get you right to this point or maybe got you to your appointment where you had that corrective surgery, Greg. Like they, they work to an extent, but to go to the next level um, in anything, right? In your ability to see, um, make money, change your relationships, you are going to need new beliefs to be able to reach that. Yeah. And, you know, you quoted this Dartmouth College professor, uh, Patrick Kavanaugh, and this really goes along. He said, it's really important to understand we're not seeing reality. We're seeing a story that's been created for us. Yeah. Um, What advice do you have to the listeners about questioning their stories? Now we're talking about beliefs and stories and the subsequent changes that they can make in their reality. Because look, yep. if I'm living this story, that's creating the reality. If I create a new story, I can create a new reality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, not just in like a, I'm going to change my mind kind of way. Right. I, I see all this um, positive quotes and affirmative uh, uh, positive affirmations and so on on social media and Instagram and everywhere else. And, and it's fantastic. But sometimes it seems like, oh, I'm just supposed to change my mind or change my story. And anybody that's been in a difficult situation or any situation knows that that's not really an easy thing to do. It's not like, oh, I thought this. Now I'm going to think this. You've got to go through a process to really release that. And, you know, the first step, and we called it out here, is stepping back from it. You know, take some time for reflection, take a a sacred pause, meditate, do something to try and step a little bit back from those beliefs and start to question them. I think that's the first step. Um, Something that I think could help with that. Can I mention the quiz we have online, Greg? Yeah, definitely. We don't want to forget that. 
Yeah, well, so, you know, we've built our lives and by extension, our business avoiding discomfort because when we were much younger, as you point out, or or maybe just earlier in our career, we didn't feel very good when we felt discomfort. So we make decisions, we attach ourselves to beliefs like, oh, well, I'm not going to do that again. For me, I'm not a good public speaker. I'm definitely not going to do that again. And then we live that way. Mm-hmm. And the blind spot for many of us is that we forget we made those decisions. We forget what those beliefs were that we attached ourselves to. So we put this uh, really short hunting discomfort quiz together online. It's 15 questions. You go through, answer the questions and at the end of it. It'll give you some sense of what that discomfort, maybe the invisible discomfort that's been in your way of the results that you want to achieve. And of course, in the quiz, it'll give you some direction of what to do with it. So just go to sterlinghawking.com and forward Sterlinghawking.com. Okay. Just go there. Um, Yeah. If you go there, it'll pop up on the home screen. It's really easy to find. Um, If you've got any issue with it, anybody can email me at sterling at sterlinghawkins.com and happy to um, get you pointed toward this quiz or talk with you about any questions you might have. Well, I think there's probably listeners out there and me included because after I had a couple of collapses um, yeah. doing startups, you know, the anxiety attacks started to happen. Oh yeah. And they got so debilitating um, that I ended up going to get biofeedback. And the best thing I ever do- did was uh, become a devotee of self-realization fellowship and start the meditation practice. Beautiful. And the meditation versus being hooked to the wires. But here's the thing. And yeah. I, and I want to address a very sensitive thing. An action that triggers an anxiety attack, now because the anxiety attack is so painful, it debilitates you. You know, I was at one point, I wouldn't even go in elevators. I wouldn't take clients to lunches because I'd have these things that would make me feel like I was having a heart attack. My heart would start yeah. to race. I would sweat. I'd get upset stomach. I was sick. I know these stomach, feelings very well. Right? Yeah. So I had these for, for a while and I finally mm. went to scripts and got hooked up with all the things. And I've said this before to the listeners, the fear associated, the fear associated with one of the attacks is triggered by an event, which is falsely in your mind that that event is actually triggering that. Mm -hmm. So these become a, a, an almost a horrible cycle to try and break. Yeah. Right. And you, you obviously have had these yourself because you're sitting yeah. there going, I've had yeah. this. <laughs> um, and all I can say to the listeners who's having anxiety attacks uh, versus the medication, I'm not saying go off the medication for your doctor, but there are so many ways through meditation, Chai Chi, tai chi yoga, uh, alternative practices, uh, long walks in the wood, along the beach that you can control these and you can get out of them. Um, We've had experts on here speaking about them and I I know there's alternative ways, but a lot of doctors just like to say, well, here's a pill, go take it, you know, and we'll fix your anxiety attacks. And I'll tell you, I personally, I'm not giving medical advice here, but I personally would avoid going down that road. Yeah. Taking some of those pills, I I think was all they do is make you go to sleep. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, it's a way of emotionally not having to deal with the discomfort. Yes. Yes. And it doesn't, it doesn't help you. You might feel a little bit better. And again, I'm not a doctor, not medical advice, like all the things. Right. But for me, it didn't, it maybe assuaged some of those uncomfortable feelings, but it left me in the same situation that I was in. I, I didn't have to deal with the source of that discomfort or that anxiety. It's true. And I'd, ra- I'd rather tell people, you know, I don't, I, again, I said, yes, I've gone through hypnosis many times. Yeah. Try something like that. It's going to your subconscious because that's where this is being triggered as yeah. a result of some fear. Okay. Yeah. So you tell a great story in the book about Ludwig van Beethoven and the correlation right. of self-doubt. And you said self-doubt a minute ago. Can you tell the story and why self-doubt is the no man's land of indecision between belief and disbelief? 
Yeah. And what are the eight telltale signs of self-doubt? And if you don't remember all the eight, that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll just tell the people, go buy the book. (laughs) No, no. He didn't want those questions where I asked for exactly eight of this or two. Right. No, I've, I've got him here. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit. The first, I think self-doubt isn't inherently a bad thing. I think it's something that can tell you what's really important to you. If I don't care about something, I probably don't have a lot of self-doubt around it. So it's a little bit of a compass orienting us towards like, hey, I must really care about this thing, this business, this speech, this relationship, whatever it is. Like there's something here for me that's deeply important. Now, the trick is not letting that self-doubt stop you. And Beethoven is a great example. You know, famous composer. Most everybody has heard of him, heard his music and so on. Um, but there's a movie about a romantic interest that he had. Mm-hmm. And apparently I it was it. some like sordid love affair and, you know, nobody could know who it was. Maybe she was married to somebody else. Like some of the details around it are unclear. Um, but it was clear from some of Beethoven's writing in his journal and so on that it was somebody that he really loved deeply. And, and in the movie and in some of the, my research, I found that he had written a love letter to this person, basically saying, like, let's meet here. Let's, you know, run away together of sorts. But he never sent the letter. It was found in his desk drawer when he passed away. The person on the other side of that relationship never received it, never knew how he felt. And in the period of his life where he wasn't sending this letter and he was dealing with all these feelings of self-doubt, probably things along the lines of, will she like me? I don't know if I should. What will it look like in society? As he was struggling with all of those things and not sending the letter, not taking any actions about it, it led to the most unproductive period in his musical writing life mm-hmm. traced back to the the times when it happened now thankfully after years he came back to writing music became very prolific thereafter but i think it's the same for all of us when that self-doubt stops us in one area it becomes debilitating becomes like a an anchor or an albatross holding us back from reaching the potential that's really inside of us And so if that can happen to somebody like Beethoven, it can happen to all of us. Well, you know, I, I deal with business owners all the time because I consult them and, you know, as they get older, let's face it, I'm a lot older than, you know, 68, uh, July 3rd, that the reality is, is that happy belated by the way. Yeah. The the reality is, is that, are you relevant? Mm -hmm. You know, what does relevance mean for you? In other words, they've, built this baby, grown it, doesn't matter how many employees, whatever it is, the company. It's about the fact that they were needed. They were Mm -hmm. relevant. They were, Mm -hmm. you know, and that question comes up in succession planning. People that are moving on saying, hey, I'm going to give this to my kids or I'm going to sell it to somebody. I'm going to do whatever. What Mm -hmm. am I going to do? And there is this period of adjustment where it's almost like grieving. There's a loss in grieving. You know, you've Absolutely. lost something, right? Yeah. So Probably parts of your identity. Well, in, in your case and mine too, several times, right? Mm-hmm. Through businesses. Oh, we were tied up. We were associated with this XYZ business. That was yeah. us, right? That was, right. Uh, that was everything, right? Yeah. And when it goes away and you end up living with your parents in a, you know, 10 by 10 room, <laughs> then you're like, okay, <laughs> things are a little different here. Yeah. Um, you know, you you tell a great story, and I loved this story. In fifth grade, um, you were to make a presentation about Harry Houdini. Mm-hmm. I loved Houdini as well, and all the musician magicians yeah. in particular. Yeah, you, you were fascinated by the figure in history, and something happened that day that had a permanent implant in your psyche. Right. Um, and when I say permanent, maybe not permanent now, but it seemed permanent at the time. Yeah. Can you tell us the story and speak with the listeners about the types of exposure discomfort? Because I thought that was an interesting one. It's like, hey, I'm supposed to get up in front of the classroom and do my presentation. It's like, uh, 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think what was so interesting about that is when I had that big collapse and I was afraid to speak in public, I could have said like, oh, well, I'm just afraid to speak in public because I have just been through this. But that's not where the discomfort originated. And I would say that's true for all of us, at least all of us that are of any, uh, of any age. That discomfort started somewhere. Nobody came out of the womb and they're like, oh, this one's afraid of speaking in public. This one has self-doubt. Right. Right. Those discomforts, those beliefs started somewhere. And the closer we can get to the root of that discomfort, the more access we have to really being able to move through it and ultimately let go of it. And for me, I, I've done a lot of work around this stuff. I work with a lot of leaders tracing some of these things back. For for me, I found that public speaking came back to this experience that I had in fifth grade. And in fifth grade, I was not afraid to speak in public. In fact, I was so excited to speak about Houdini in this class presentation that I wanted to be the last speaker because I was sure it was going to be the best. Had a lot of confidence around it, was excited, prepared a ton. And um, when the time finally came, I'm the last presentation, I get up in the front of the room. I've got my, I think I was dressed as Houdini. And I went so far as to like handcuff myself behind my back because I was going to do like a big ta-da at the end, like I'm out of these handcuffs. And I see that red light click on in front of me. You know, in those big old school camcorders, that's what it was at the time. And I didn't know what to say. <laughs> I forgot. Yet you'd present, yet you've gone over it and over it and over it, right? <laughs> I, I, I practiced a ton. I did everything things that I thought I was supposed to do. But looking at the, you know, 25 pairs of eyes of students in the room and a couple of teachers and the red light on that camera, I went blank. Yeah. Now, as a teacher, it probably wasn't a big thing, but for me, it was literally felt like the end of my life. Yeah. Like if I could have disappeared in that moment, I would have. Mm -hmm. um, and it, again, it was debilitating discomfort. I don't know if I ever gave the rest of that presentation. I do remember uh, getting really hot, the room spinning, somebody having to come up and like help me out of the handcuffs. Like I totally <laughs> collapsed. <laughs> uh, and then it, and then when I, I love the story, <laughs> when, when I saw that, I was like, that's where that started. Like unconsciously, I made, I attached myself to a belief. I made a decision that I'm not a good public speaker and I should never do that again. And if I do, something like this is assuredly going to happen again. I'm taking something that happened way back in fifth grade. And here I am in my thirties and putting it out there in my future saying, now I still can't speak in public. Yeah. Not realizing that that's what I was doing. So, like I said, I was stuck with that discomfort. I wasn't free from it. All the way to Singapore. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I think there's two ways to But you got through. through the one on Singapore and you made exactly. success. One is a little bit of exposure therapy. Like you've got to find that discomfort, expose yourself to it to really understand what it's like. And the second is do kind of the work that I was just sharing, like get to the root of that discomfort. Yeah. And, and where did it start? And, you know, just to answer your questions about you know, what are some of the telltale signs of where can I see my fear of exposure popping up in my life? You look for things like being afraid to break the status quo. And that could be like asking why. Hey, we've done this for 50 years like this, or I've done this my entire life in this way. Obviously, I'm supposed to do it that way. But stepping back and asking why and having uh, or going through the discomfort to do it is is one place. Um, you might look at doing something new, especially something that you are not good at. If you're afraid of that, that's a little bit of fear of exposure coming up. Uh, telling the truth, saying no, asking for help, really trusting somebody with something or with some information about yourself. Like all of those things can be a signal that, hey, my fear of exposure, my fear of somebody seeing me for who I really am is something that's dangerous to me. Now, there's a, a big confusion with many people of something that's just uncomfortable versus something that's really dangerous. And I would say in most all of these cases, 
when we talk about fear of exposure, it's not actually dangerous to you. It might be dangerous to your identity, but your physical well-being is not at risk, right? It may be uncomfortable, but it's going through that discomfort that, again, is going to be the location of the results that you want. Well, it's so true. I mean, um, I, I I come upon Albert Einstein's quote, which it's not exact, but he used to say, keep doing things the same way and expecting different results is the definition of insanity. Yeah. Right? So yeah. what you're saying is the exposure is the way to change the way that you do something. And I, right. I would agree. Yeah. Um, you know, I had an incident like you at seven years old. Uh, there was an argument in the family between my mother and father. I got in between, which I shouldn't have. And my mm. father picked me up and went against the wall. And I did conflict avoidance yep. on most of my life. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a very easy one. You don't realize it at seven years old. Nope. But when you get to be 30 and 40 years old and you see what you're doing, mm-hmm. and you really realize you're saying, why aren't you willing to address that person. Why aren't you, what are you avoiding? Why are you avoiding that? And I would, I'd ask people to really think about what are you avoiding? Because the things that you're avoiding are probably a result of something that happened somewhere that Mm -hmm. you put into the psyche that you just have a hard time getting rid of. So, right. Well, I, I would go so far as to say it is never what happened to you. It was never, you know, getting in the middle of the fight with your parents. It was never me forgetting what to say in fifth grade. It's what you said about it. It's the lens of belief, the decisions you made from that moment that can and do shape your life, at least until you break free of them. It is. It's what you tell yourself over and over and over again after the event, right? Exactly. And that becomes impermanently implanted in your subconscious, which then creates the actions. And so there's where, there's where you end up. So look, as a kid, I love the show MacGyver too. Uh, just like you. (laughs) Yeah, it's my favorite. (laughs) He always found a way out or how to fix something. I was obsessed with what were such creative solutions. That's me because I'm always asking questions. You speak about both the common way we avoid challenges as well as the mistakes we make when addressing challenges. Yeah. Uh, can you speak with the listeners about being uh, a better able and uh, to face challenges instead of avoiding them? We were just talking about that because, hey, yeah. look, for 40 years, 30 years, I avoided conflict. Yep. Right? Didn't know how to deal with it. So yep. I'd go the other way or I'd let someone else do it. It didn't yeah. work. Doesn't yeah, work. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work. Uh, and yet, uh, oftentimes we'll find ourselves doing it over and over again. And avoiding is one way you can see it. And I would define avoiding as seeing something that feels potentially uncomfortable and stopping or going the other direction. But we can also dodge it, right? See it and then delay dealing with it for a period of time. We can deny we have it at all. We can excuse it and and make excuses for yourself like, oh, I don't deal with uh, conflict that well because of X, Y, and Z. All of that may be true, but it doesn't get you to be better dealing with conflict. And also when we deal with uh, contempt, like we have contempt for some of the changes, challenges that we have in front of us. And there are are several things that are kind of mistaken ways or flawed ways from addressing some of the challenges that we might face. But the biggest that I see is solving for the consequence, not the cause. A friend of mine, when I was writing the book, she was going to the dentist and she was grinding her teeth at night. Like she knew it, the dentist knew it. And what the dentist solution was for her to wear a mouth guard while she was sleeping. Now, that solves the problem. But it doesn't solve the reason she was grinding her teeth to begin with. You know, was it, was it stress in a relationship or at work? Was she sleeping wrong? Like what was it that was at the core of what she wasn't dealing with? And to be fair, the mouth guard may have been the right choice. Like sometimes you do need to handle the consequences of something, but unless you get to the core of what's causing it to begin with, you're just putting band-aids on things and it will not get better over time. Frankly, it'll oftentimes get worse. Couldn't agree with you more. And it takes a lot of courage many times and and especially relationship issues to address those. And 
come up with solutions or work your way through it or whatever it is. You know, there's nothing more painful than a family going through a divorce and the kids being separated and spending time in between. And so trying to work that out. So what you would say is carefully choose those relationships before you go down the road (laughs) a little bit further. Um, Sure. You know, the book is filled with great advice, Sterling. Um, Thank you. And there's takeaways from each chapter. And and just for my listeners, at the end of the chapters, there's takeaways. You have his quiz at his website, um, which I'm going to encourage all the listeners go to sterlinghawkings.com. And we'll have a link to that. We'll have a link to the book and Amazon uh, as well. But what do you want people to know about discomfort that will allow them to navigate through it with potentially less pain and suffering? And if there is pain and suffering, how to cope with it in a way that changes their reality for the better? Yeah. Well, I think one of the important things for me, at least, and a lot of the people and companies I work with is how you actually understand discomfort, like what it's telling you. And the automatic for many of us is no surprise, like, oh, that's uncomfortable. I'm going to move away from it, avoid it, or or deal with it in some backhanded way, which means I'm not really going to deal with it anyways. Uh, But according to some research out of Yale, when you are uncomfortable, when you're feeling those feelings of discomfort, maybe the butterflies in your stomach or your heart racing or you get hot and sweaty, like whatever those symptoms of discomfort are for you. The research out of Yale says that in that state, you can learn four times faster. Mm -hmm. Discomfort is not something to be avoided. It is literally the state of discomfort is literally a superpower to getting better, faster, and stronger. And when you lean into it. So did that Harvard study say what's going on inside chemically with inside your system? Because I know, Mm -hmm. you know, there's certain chemicals, you know, we there's endorphins, right? That's the eye. Well, that's not coming from discomfort. There's cortisol, which rushes your system usually during fear or associated. What, what did they say in that article? If you can remember about what's actually happening physiologically with our systems under these high levels or degrees of discomfort. Yeah. So I don't remember the chemicals in the, the brain. It it was actually Yale study. I'm sure they were cited. Yeah, It was more that it's telling your brain and your body, like, this is really important. You need to pay attention to this. Mm-hmm. And when you're in that state, you just get better at learning. It's, it's important to you. Now, I think humans have it from like a survival standpoint, right? Like, I need to survive uh, this lion on the savanna, or I need to find food right now, right? But the same mechanics gives all of us the ability to, to learn faster, to grow faster. I mean, had I known this, Greg, I think I would have been sitting in the front row in college on a bed of nails. Like, like give me discomfort because it is a superpower to get better. Yeah, it, it's, it just amazes me all the time, the people and the events that I've seen. And, and one I was going to recall was the guy that did it for Red Bull that went up, mm. what was it, like five miles and jumped out of the, in the balloon, yeah. right? Yeah, in, the, in like the space suit or something. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But the amount of preparation, you can imagine the discomfort. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, if the if one thing went wrong or this went wrong and testing all the things, and I watched another guy from Google do it as well. Yeah. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, it, it was you, you say hunting discomfort. I don't think you could do anything <laughs> more. I mean, Seriously, both physical discomfort, emotional discomfort, physical discomfort, all of it has to be associated with, well, I'm just going to put the suit on and jump out of this thing at five miles in the air (laughs) and head for for Earth, right? (laughs) So when you think about what's going on in our psychology, even though they may have like said, hey, well, we have the parachute, we've got this, we've got that, but there's so many things that can go wrong, right? Right. Um, So it would have been great to maybe put electrodes on that guy and seeing what was actually happening physiologically in his in his body Baumgartner was his name Baumgartner was the guy yeah I've I've seen the video it's incredible it is it is but you know Sterling you've given our listeners much to think about and I'm just going to tell them go to the website um, do the quiz 
Now, is the quiz leading to some kind of course? Is there anything that, that you've created or is it mainly just, okay, this point? No, it, right. Yet. Like I, I'm not selling anything. I, I do work with uh, usually executive teams at companies and companies around how to shift their culture from a culture that avoids discomfort to one that really goes after it. And unsurprisingly results in huge gains in performance. But, you know, like I said earlier, anybody's free to email me, contact me on the website. If there's some way that I can help, I'm, I'm happy to contribute. Thank you so much for it. Namaste to you. I appreciate you, Sterling. And we'll talk again soon. Have a wonderful rest of your day. I can't wait. You too. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.